0: Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. I hope you're sitting in front of a fan. You are. I can turn this one around. There's one here. It does get pretty stuffy in here. Oh no, I'm gonna destroy something if I move that too far. Um, yes, we are across the month of March. Usually what we do is we would take like a passage of scripture and we would look at it through different lenses and really listen to perspectives and voices that we may not often um, hear in, our, um, in, ch- in church. But through March, because we're in Lent and we're leading into Easter, we're actually going to do that but with the cross. So we're going to be looking at the cross and just considering um, the beauty and the message and the power of the cross through looking at it through different lenses. We've done this over the years and so over the many years, if you've been around at Central, you would have heard lots of different um, kind of perspectives on the cross. Some of them are official atonement theories that come out in our theology and in our history and others are more creative um, expressions or useful or unuseful metaphors for how we can understand the mystery of the cross. And I think the thing that I hold on to at the end of the day um, with a lot of this is that um, like a lot of things of faith, and especially the things of God, um, it is mystery. Uh, we do have some things in Scripture that give us pointers, that gives, give us ways of understanding, ways that other people have understood the cross. But often when we're talking about things like this, we, we we are unable to truly pull back the veil and see what really was going on and so these the aim of looking at these perspectives is not to set them against one another it's not to say this is the definitive you know reason why Jesus came and died it's to increase our wonder and increase our you know kind of worship of Jesus that we might you know, in different ways, see something new and afresh. That as we come again to Easter, every trip around the sun, and every time we come back towards that season of Lent and towards you know Good Friday and Easter Sunday, that we're filled afresh with wonder with what Jesus is doing. So that's that's our aim across um, March. And so there's a few different perspectives that we'll be doing. Um, and tonight I've I've got one to throw out, which you can like or not like. And, That's all right. Um, I want to just read 2 Corinthians chapter 3 because this this has become a very kind of like really important verse for me um, in scripture. And Paul is writing and he says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image, with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I like to do this sort of mental swap whenever I come up against the word glory in Scripture. Like this is, you you can disagree with me, but I, I find glory sometimes one of those untouchable spiritual words. I like to interchange it with beauty. Because I think for me that gets to the heart of something of what the word glory is trying to bring. And so I think about this verse and I think, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's beauty are being transformed into his image with ever increasing beauty which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so I... I just firmly hold on to this idea that as we contemplate Jesus, as we gaze upon Jesus, as we gaze upon his beauty, as we gaze upon his glory, as we stare at him over time, and specifically as we stare at the cross, that that is actually a transformative action in our own lives which produces beauty in us. And so that's what we kind of sort of try to do here, I suppose, at Central, is just take space to energise gazing at the cross, gazing at beauty. Um, Over the years, as I've done this more and more, I've really come to appreciate um, art, specifically Catholic art of the cross. If you've been around Central for long enough, you would have seen me throw up at least one random art image Um, and so I have one for us tonight. Um, I I did, I have used this one before so you might be somewhat familiar with it. So this is titled Crucifixion with Mourners. I like, you know, just in case you needed an obvious title for your artwork. Crucifixion with Mourners, it was painted around 1441 by an Italian man named Guido Di Pietro or better known in the art and Catholic world as Fra Angelico. If you've been to probably some of the um, ch- churches in in Italy, you may have actually seen the full life-size um, murals painted by Fra Angelico that adorn some of the cathedrals around. So he was a, a monk, a very, very talented monk, and he was a painter and he painted many kind of like biblical images. But he's especially painted quite a few of the crucifixion, but this is one of his. I've come to I was raised absolutely Protestant. Um, so I was raised with this. There is never any Jesus on the cross. In any, you know what I mean? In in any of our buildings, in any of our images, in any of our icons. There's never any Jesus on the cross. It's always empty because, you know, we're the people of the resurrection. That's how I was raised. And look, I love that, you know, Jesus is no longer hanging on the cross. He is alive. Um, Amen. Amen. (laughs) But, and of course, so like the Catholics were the weird ones who always had the dead, you know, Jesus on the cross. It was all a bit morbid and, you know... Anyway, but over the years, as I've come to appreciate um, the depth of um, spirituality within the Catholic tradition, their art and their representations of Scripture, I've come to love the fact that for them Jesus is still on the cross. I've come to love the paintings of the crucifixion. And I've come to realize, I used to think, why do they paint them so 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 immaculate, so clean, so, you know, beautiful, so pristine because you know we're used to uh, you know um, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ where it's blood and gore and like you know that kind of emotive thing of like this is how much Jesus went through just for you you know like I can't tell you how many sermons like so this idea that you'd paint it so sanitized was always just a little bit wrong in my opinion back in the day but I've actually come to appreciate it and it's because I believe that the longer you gaze at the cross, the more beautiful it actually becomes. So there's a beauty present in the crucifixion that I think that these people are capturing, not because they didn't realise that it was brutal, um, but because for them it's not about the brutality of what went on on that day, but the beauty of what stands at the centre of the world for all time. And so they've painted it out of their spirituality and out of their belief in the beauty of Jesus. And and so I think there's an invitation for us in looking at this art to, to have to realise, to see the beauty of it and to ourselves enter in to the beauty of the cross. So this one I love, um, Crucifixion with Mourners, because um, Fra Angelico's painted obviously the, the crucifixion. There's lots of imagery in this. There's lots of beautiful kind of like, not hidden messages, but just you know so you see that that you know I n r r i at the top is like um, Jesus Christ is it king of the Jews now forgotten king of the Jews you if you can see just faintly there's some um, it looks like someone's typed over the painting up at Jesus's mouth that's actually the Hebrew for today you'll be with me in paradise but it's written for us around the wrong way and back to front so it's written as if it's coming out of the mouth of Jesus towards the thief so it's like it's very clever the way that Fra Angelico has painted this. He's got um, four people standing at the foot of the cross um, in this painting. Two of them were actually there. Two he's imposed historically into the picture. This is interesting. Um, he's he's done that for, for good reason. So the two people that you can see on the very left, my, yep, left here, we that is John. beloved disciple whose face is turned away from the crucifixion in what could only be described as grief and mourning and potentially even an, an expression of the trauma of this event for him so we have in this picture in John a posture towards the Christ the cross that is is grief is lament um, is covering the face, is turning away. Uh, standing next to him is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, now I'm a mother, if I was watching my son be crucified, I doubt I'd be standing there like Mary is. <laughs> but Frau Fra Angelico's painted her in what can only really be described as a posture of utter contemplation. And I think rather than being historically accurate to what was going on on the day, what he's doing is bringing in the posture of Mary, which has forever been known as one of contemplation. We hear again and again in the mouth of Mary through the scriptures, she treasured these things deeply in her heart and thought on them. And here we have Guido painting Mary with that posture of contemplation, that she's gazing at the cross, thinking deeply about what's going on. Now on the right, we have the two people who definitely weren't there at all, um, superimposed into this picture. The dude with his hands outstretched, standing in what could possibly only be described as worship or maybe even petition or asking or questioning, I don't know what you see in that, but I see a few things in that posture, with his arms out wide. That's St. Dominic, the founder of the Dominican order. Um, So he's standing there at the foot of the cross in in worship, uh, in petition and in in questioning. Um, Another posture at the foot of the cross. And then standing to his, or, or not standing, kneeling to his right, we have St. Thomas Aquinas and he's holding a book um, and he's kneeling and that book is most likely, so Thomas Aquinas was famous for writing a giant theological tome called the Summer Theologica. And so we see St. Thomas Aquinas kneeling at the foot of the cross, holding his, you know, massive book of theology um, before Jesus. And I find um, paintings like this amazing because they invite us to recognize that in this wonder of Jesus on the cross, there is multiple postures that we can bring to to contemplating and gazing on this image. And we might actually, at a different time in our life, find ourselves resonating more clearly or more sincerely with one of these four. We might recognize all four, kind of like within us all the time there might be one that feels very foreign for us and we don't know what that feels like but I see in this picture the four postures of like in St. Thomas Aquinas we see this idea of study of wrestling of theology of gazing at the cross and figuring out what it means and putting pen to paper in order to express deep theological thought in um, St. Dominic we see this posture of Worship and wonder and questioning and petitioning, standing at the foot of the cross with boldness, like arms out wide, I come to Jesus. In Mary, we see the posture of contemplation, thinking deeply on these things, treasuring them in our hearts. And in John, we see a posture of grief, of despair, of not being able to look And I could tell you moments of my life when I felt all of these things as I've come before Jesus. And so I just offer this picture and these postures to you at the beginning of this month so that as we move through and Becca shares a perspective next week and Oren preaches on the third Sunday that you might consider these four postures in yourself. In what places is God inviting you into study and learning? In what places is God inviting you into boldness and worship and questioning? In what places is the Holy Spirit just inviting you into contemplation and deep thinking? And what might you feel like you need to turn away from? Or what might bring you grief? Because for many of us, we've we've experienced toxic theology of the cross. Sometimes it's right to turn away. Sometimes it's too much and we need to turn away. But that's a valid posture at the foot of the cross. And it has its place, I think, in our ever changing and being transformed into the beauty of Christ. So, this afternoon, I just want to share a, a brief perspective that's brought me a bit of energy and life in the last little while. And it's considering the cross. I, I couldn't come up with a really good title for this or words. I, Considering the cross as like an archetype or a a clear picture of what humanity does best and what God does in return. That's what I think a perspective of the cross that we can get. When we look at the cross, we can see, wow, that's what we do best. We kill things. And then what does God do with that? God recycles that into redemption. And resurrection for the life of the world. It's like this dual kind of picture. So I want to just dive into how I've seen that in the cross and what life it's kind of given me. So one of the things that this sparked out of is that over three centuries before Jesus, the Greek philosopher Plato Everyone familiar with Plato? Now, if if it's Greek philosophy, I'm not even at 101. I'm like, I read what other people write about it, and I'll just take that, because I've never... So I've never actually read this myself, but I've heard other people talk about this, and I have gone back to find it. So the the Greek philosopher Plato, in his book or thing that he wrote called The Republic... Has anyone read Plato? Just so I'm I'm clear about how ignorant I'm appearing in the room. (gasps) Wow, okay, well... That's pretty cool. I oh. have <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't think I, I really want to read it. I just want to read what other people oh, you know. <laughs> I want to read like the the cheat note summary. Anyway, Plato's Republic in part of it in like I've got a, I've got a, the quote up here, Chris, I think. Book 2 360 to 361. I've no idea if those page numbers, line numbers, I don't even know. I'm an ignorant. Um section numbers okay so Plato is writing and he's presenting a dialogue between this guy called Glaucon who I think is Plato's older brother and the other philosopher Socrates so he's writing this dialogue between these two men and this is what Plato writes there will arise one righteous man who is entirely righteous Let this one righteous man in his nobleness and simplicity, one who desires to be a good man and not merely give the impression of being a good man, now be accused of being in fact the worst of men. Let him moreover remain steadfast to the hour of death, seeming to be unrighteous And yet, being righteous, what would be the outcome? He shall be scourged, 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 scourged. Get my vows right scourged, tortured, bound, and at last, after suffering every evil, shall be impaled or crucified. 300 years before Jesus, Plato's speculating what would happen if an entirely righteous man was to come and walk this earth. And his conclusion was, if that was to happen, we would deem him unrighteous, then torture and crucify him. It's really fascinating, isn't it? Like, that's a fascinating insight. Now, some people see this as Plato prophesying the, um, the life and the death of Christ. I... I I have no opinions on Plato's status as a prophet, Um, but I do think that I see in this statement what Plato and other philosophers were able to grab a hold of is I think they could acknowledge and wrestle with the fact that this, like... They they were like hitting the nail on the head with kind of what humankind is like. Do you know what I mean? Like it's like, it's not that they were predicting, you know, the future of Jesus. It was more like they were just like actually getting humankind absolutely smack bang right. Like this is our tendency. If there was to be someone utterly righteous, the human tendency would be to not handle that, call it unrighteous, then kill it. I think that's the essence of what... um, what Plato's getting at. If there was ever a truly righteous man to walk the earth, we would call him unrighteous and kill him. And of course, we can now look backwards and see that fulfilled in the life of Jesus, but I I don't see that working forwards for Plato, but you're welcome to. I feel like what Plato and many others have kind of like, they're getting at is they can see clearly there is a human tendency to stuff things up. That somehow seems to be part of the fabric of our humanity, this glorious ability to mess things up. Moses and Paul both kind of echo this reality uh, in ways that I really love. So uh, obviously we've got a lot of writing of Moses in the Old Testament, a lot of instructions that God gave Moses, Moses passed to the people. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19, uh, Moses is kind of like doing a big summary of, this is how to live God's way. And so he gets to this this point and he's standing in front of all the Israelites and he says, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have placed before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. Like as if that was, you know, going to be brought into question, which I think is what Moses is getting at, is he's actually getting at this idea that when placed before us to like life, death, blessings and curses, it's not obvious to us to always choose life. We have a wonderful capacity to choose the stupid option and to mess things up. And so he goes to Captain Obvious level and he's like, okay, I've given you all these choices, now I'm giving you the actual answer to the exam. Choose A, choose life. This is like Moses in his most amazing bit. Paul, of course, comes at this same wrestle that Plato has been wrestling with that, you know, Moses has talked about. And we see this most clearly, I think, in Romans chapter seven, where we get Paul's like great conundrum on humanity, you know, like, and I'm not, I've sort of truncated some of chapter seven because, if, I don't know, if you're like me when you read Paul, there's a, there's a lot of superfluous language. Um, So this is what Paul writes. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. This is the same as Moses' his life, his death, his blessing, his cursing. And Paul's like, I keep just choosing B. I can't get out of choosing B. And, you know, he goes on to long explanations of why that is. But it's that same thing, this tendency in humanity towards mistakes, stuffing up, self-destruction. We have, it seems to be this thing that is clear. I love this, this quote by Brennan Manning, who writes, when I get honest... I admit I am a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest and I play games. Aristotle said, I am a rational animal. I say, I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. And this is that same conundrum present in the human condition. This, we just have this innate kind of like ability to mess things up. And I think what, what Plato, what Moses, what Paul, what Brennan Manning, what scores of other philosophers and theologians and psychologists and probably quite frankly you and I could all agree is that given the opportunity where maybe just as likely to stuff things up spectacularly as we are to make a good choice. There just seems to be this capacity within humanity for self-destruction, for others' destruction, despite our best efforts and intentions. Parenting is the lifelong lesson in this, right? That it does not matter, maybe it does matter, all you've got to come to peace with is that your best intentions and your most brilliant parenting will still land your children in therapy, right? That's just, you know, despite the best that you can do, we we just, ne- we can't be perfect. There's too many things at stake. There's too many things. I don't has anyone seen The Good Life and like watched it through to like, you know the, the show, The Good Life, The Good The Good Place, I'm getting it, thank you. The Good Place, anyone seen that? Okay, so a few people. So you know, this is what I love about The Good Place, is they do that thing of like working out who gets into heaven and there's a good rating and the whole thing is stuffed up and they sort of get get into the back doors of figuring out why is nobody actually getting into heaven and basically all humanity is screwed. And what they realize is that if you follow it down, like you think you're doing a good thing, oh, I'm giving money to charity. But then you just go and have a look at that charity and what they actually do with that money and then like your goodness goes down. And then you realize what happens to that. And your goodness points just actually go way into the negative. But even though, it's very, it's very interesting. But I think what it's pulling at is this same thread, like that it's, it's, this, it's just complex. We're paradoxical creatures. Our tendencies and our desires to do good often still make mess. And this is just part of what it means to be human. You could actually read the Bible as a concise and ultimate litany of all the ways to mess up. Here's some fruit, don't eat it. Oh, I ate it. Here, have a brother. Oh, I'll kill him. Oh, no, this, this wife, she's my sister. Oh, no. Whoops, I slept with my sister. Oh, no, how many people can I sleep with in the wrong way? Oh, no, I've killed you accidentally. I've stolen your land. I've annihilated your race. Like, you could just go through the Bible as a litany of ways humanity has actually just messed the whole thing up. And find within it, of course, the threads of how God has woven it all towards goodness and redemption. But, you know, we, not that we need any help, I don't think, in, um, in stuffing things up. But ultimately, then as we come towards the cross, we can see the cross as the the ultimate culmination of our tendency to mess it up. Here comes God in skin, our creator, the one who gives us life, the source of all things, the author of goodness, and we kill him. Like that's the ultimate stuff up of humanity. But what does God do with that? Recycles it into goodness, forgiveness, love, grace, mercy, abundance, resurrection, life popping up out of death everywhere. This is what I kind of see when we look at the cross. Now I need to, I I want to just pause on this perspective because I realize what I'm doing here is I'm pushing up against the doctrine of total depravity. All right. Has anyone felt a little bit uncomfortable with how much I'm telling you that we're all crap? We don't tend to do that here because I actually don't believe in total depravity. But I want to acknowledge that I'm threading a theological needle here tonight, okay? Because I, there is most of us have probably been raised, or at least formed, or we've swum in the waters of total depravity. You are a worm. The core of you is depraved, original sin, brand new baby is born and it's like terrible and alienated from God. Do you know what I mean? Are you familiar? You're familiar with this. That is not what I'm saying at all. I am an absolute believer in original blessing. I am an absolute believer that at the very core of our being is goodness. Goodness is the divine fingerprints, is the essence of God, is what Jared Manley Hopkins called the immortal diamond. That's what I believe. I believe if you could splice a human being in half spiritually, what would be sitting at the core is light and love and God. That's what I believe. So what I'm talking about here tonight is not that we are terrible people because we killed Jesus. I'm talking about at our essence we are absolutely beloved and we have a tendency to make big mistakes and they both coexist in harmony and paradox and the reason I'm saying this is because it actually really matters what you believe on this. It really matters. It will affect your worldview, it will affect your self-esteem, it will affect the way you're able to love others, it will affect the way you see God, it will affect the way you're able to kind of like see people who are different from you based on whether or not you believe at the core of a human being is the essence of God or whether at the core of a human being is utter depravity. That actually makes a massive difference in your worldview. And while most of us, probably in the last couple of centuries have been raised with total depravity as a as a key doctrinal point that's not the case for huge chunks of Christian history and it's actually not what Genesis says about us that God looks at all that he had made and he said it's very good I believe that I believe that long before any kind of like mess happened The core of humanity was goodness, the reflection of God, the image of God, very, very good. So I'm I'm, I'm wanting to thread a needle here tonight about how we can look at the cross and realise like, wow, that's like our greatest mistake and our tendency to do that while remaining true to the core of who we are, that we are beloved of God. And I think it kind of of matters how we hold this because I think like the cross becomes for me... um, in this perspective, the cross becomes for me kind of like one of those Rorschach tests, you know, like he's an ink blob, what do you see? Um, that's what the cross is for many Christians. You'll look at the cross and you can see wrath of God, you can see destruction and pain, you can see evil of mankind, you can see redemption, like there's all kinds of things, you can, the cross is a bit of a Rorschach test. but And I believe that there is a way that we can gaze at the cross and recognise it as our humanity's most colossal mistake, in picture form. Recognising that, did we nail him to the cross? No. If we were there on the day, what would we have been doing? We all like to think that we're, you know, worshipping dude, but mm, I don't know. Who's to say? We all have a tendency, an ability, almost like sometimes a draw towards... Self-destruction, choosing B, messing up. And the cross is just simply a picture that that's part of humanity's story. And here's God's response. Love, forgiveness, self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. He comes into the midst of the worst thing we could ever do, killing the very author of life, and just recycles it back to us as grace and redemption. It's God's willingness to take on the worst of us and recycle it into the best. This is what I see. This is the perspective I want to bring to us tonight, the ability to be able to look at the cross, see it as humanity's biggest mistake, see it as God's biggest triumph, know that the two coexist. Nothing stops the center of our belovedness, and we see in that beauty Because if we can see beauty in that, do you know what that means? That means that every single little mistake or mess up or thing that you've done just does not matter because of what God did. All shame, all guilt, all condemnation has zero place at the foot of the cross if you can see the cross like this. It just does away with all kinds of things. Richard Raw says this, once the killing of God becomes the redemption of the world, then forevermore the very worst things have the power to become the very best of things. Once the killing of God becomes the redemption of the world, forevermore the very worst of things have the power to become the very best of things. This is the power of the cross. This is the beauty of the cross, that no stuff up we've ever done matters anymore to God. He can recycle everything through into beauty and goodness and glory. This is how it's worked for me in my life, because this is one of those perspectives that you Again, it's like those postures. I don't want to hear this, I'll turn away, this is boring. I'll contemplate this and think deeply on it. I'll ask a bunch of questions and consider. I'll wrestle with this. So I've probably done all of those four things over time. This is how kind of like this understanding of the work of God on the cross has kind of operated in my spiritual life. I stuff up all the time, make mistakes, say dumb things, do the wrong thing. Sometimes it's just minor everyday stuff. There's some times in my life where I would consider, like I've done some pretty stupid stuff. So you've hurt, so yeah. <laughs> I don't forget those things because they're part of my story. <clears throat> Shame is an insidious and pestering reality in all of us what shame does is shame comes into my life and reminds me gloriously often in graphic detail about my stuff ups if I let shame have its day I just end up in a spiral of self-loathing condemnation stop talking to God because God how could he you know like you know what I mean you probably got your own spiral what I have done with this perspective on the cross is this. Every single time something comes to my mind that is a stuff up, a mistake, a failure, a shame, something I'm guilty of, legitimate. Like, I'm not talking about pretend makeup stuff. I'm not the righteous man. I'm a stuff up. I just bring it to the cross. I gaze at Jesus. I look at that and I think, wow, what I did wasn't as bad as killing God. I'm, you know, not that it's about being bad or worse. I'm not but you know like that's sometimes a helpful thing and then I realize that anything can be recycled into goodness so I surrender I, I repent I say I'm sorry I acknowledge what I've done knowing that it doesn't mean anything about who I am because I am the beloved of God I let it go and then I trust God to turn even my greatest mistakes into beautiful things That's what I do. And I do that as many times as I need to do it until that memory of that thing no longer has any power. That's how this works for me. It's not just I've heard a nice thing and I've thought about it. It's like an active spiritual practice in my life that the cross has become for me a of beauty. The cross has become for me a message of the ability of humanity to stuff up and the ability of God to turn that into beauty. And so I trust in the work of the cross with all my mistakes and all my shame and all my guilt, past, present and future, and I allow the beauty of God to pop up. And I do the work of repentance and repair when necessary because that's part of it too. But that's kind of like how it's been at work in my life. And this is why I think, like I've thought about this quite deeply and I've thought, I spend a lot of time listening to people, listening to myself. This is what I've come to realise. It's only those who absolutely know their belovedness in Jesus Christ who can admit to their greatest mistakes because no mistake that they make ever touches the fingerprints of God at the center of their being. Those people who are unsure about what sits at the center of their humanity or who at core believe that they're somehow broken or you know, an ultimate sinner or depraved, really struggle to admit to their failures and mistakes because every failure and mistake is a reminder of the essence of their being. That's why it matters. So if you want to know, do I sit in the belovedness of God or do I have, you know, threads of depravity in me? The answer to that question is listen to your inner monologue when you stuff up. If you can like admit it, get through it, move on and it doesn't sting, you've probably got some belovedness at the core of your being. If you struggle endlessly with shame and guilt and condemnation, if you struggle to admit when you've made mistakes or you've done wrong, it might be because somewhere at the center you have a sneaking suspicion that you're depraved. And I just want to say to you, I don't think it's true. I think you can let that go. I think God would say over each one of us here and every single human on this planet, you are my beloved. I made you in my image. With you, I am well pleased. I look at you and I say, very good, very good, very good, very good. Do you have a tendency to stuff up? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do I turn that into life and beauty and redemption? Absolutely. So let it go and trust in me. This is how this has sort of been at work in my life. I'm gonna finish there. Thanks for listening. If you wanna check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza beloved member of Central.